2: Hello and welcome to Read Like a Writer, the podcast from Faber and Faber, Serpent's Tale, Profile Books and Canongate. I'm Anna Fielding and today I'm joined in the studio by Claire Adam. Hello Claire. Oh hello Anna. Claire's debut novel Golden Child will be published on January the 17th and it's been five years in the making but Golden Child is an absolutely captivating book. It brings the beauty and the problems of Trinidad straight to the reader. Um, we'll talk more about it in a second, Claire, but the story follows one family, um, their parents who really just want to do the best by their family and their children, and then two very different twins, Paul and Peter. Um, I also thought it was about hard choices, and it really rejects the idea that there's always one correct moral path. Um, so Claire, this is your first novel, um, and, it's focusing on Trinidad, which is, of course, where you were born and grew up.
3: Yes, that's right. Yes. So I'm from Trinidad originally. So, um, yes, yeah, so I was born there and I lived there until I was 18. And then I left and I went to university. And yes, yeah, so it's a it's a place that I sort of know very well. And like when I came to writing, you know, kind of later in life, um, you know, I sort of tried writing about all different places. Actually, I was writing about I was you know, I've been living in England for a long time, so I was trying to write about England. My mother is Irish, so I was writing about Ireland. And I was like, I lived, I was writing in all these places, about all these places that I'd sort of visited or lived and nothing was really going very well. And then I was like, oh, my God, OK, all right, let's just try and write about Trinidad. And um, and I started writing about Trinidad and it kind of seemed to work. So, it, uh, you know, I refused it for a long time. And that's kind of a story in its own right, I suppose. But um, but yes, so I... I um. After a few attempts, I eventually started this book, and it's it's sort of wrote itself. What was the reason for refusing to um, somewhere that's obviously very yeah. important to you? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's um, you know. So I, I lived in Trinidad all these years, and while I was there, really, me and my siblings. I'm the youngest of four siblings, and um, really, our time there was sort of dominated by trying to get out of Trinidad, um, which is you know, kind of similar to what the characters in the book experience. And I think it was just that having worked so hard and spent such a long time trying to get out, you know, I think once you do get out, you kind of feel like you should look to the future and you kind of don't want to look back. And so like to write about Trinidad, I guess, seemed like it was sort of returning to the past and it's sort of, I just felt like, you know, I that's in my past and I don't want to write about that or think about that or it's behind me and I just want to do something else. Um, so, yeah, so I think that was why I initially didn't, didn't turn to that subject. That makes mm. sense, actually, because mm. one of the strongest themes in the book is of...
2: Um, You know, the family struggles Mm -hmm. uh, while they're there and the the various issues that Mm -hmm. their relations have had and Mm -hmm. different ones for each sort of section Mm -hmm. of the family, really. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that you said in other interviews that the economy of the island is really tied into the oil industry. And so at different points, it will either be a bit of a boom or it will be a bit of a struggle.
3: Exactly. Yes.
2: Um, And so when the book is set, that's one of the bits where it's starting to become a less wealthy place, isn't it? Those trips to Miami and what have you, they're not so much a thing, but they are still within people's memory. And so they're still desirable.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, so I said like the book is kind of set during the 80s, but it isn't, you know, you sort of try and set it at a time where... um, you know, what you hope is that readers at any time in the future will be able to pick up this book and without knowing anything about the history of the 80s or the history of oil prices, that the book will still sort of make sense to them. So like in my mind, I sort of knew it was the 80s, partly because that's the time that I was living there. So it's a time that I knew well. Um, but I mean, it, like, it, you know, they're just like these quite small references. I think there's sort of like pop music, there's Tina Turner song and a smooth operator song. And there's just a few little references like that. Um So, yes, I mean, like in reality, like during the 80s, so Trinidad, we have oil and natural gas. And so because like that's sort of the foundation of our economy. And um, there was a time sort of late 70s, early 80s when the price of oil was very high and the economy was booming. I mean, people had so much money. Like people think of Trinidad and think, oh, maybe it's a poor country. It is not a poor country. It is a rich country because we have all this oil. Um, But then, you know, for all sorts of complicated reasons, it was this world drop in oil prices to do with what Saudi Arabia, I think, flooded the market with oil and blah, blah, blah. And so the price of oil just tumbled. And that was a huge effect on our economy. And uh, we just sank straight into a recession. And so from one day, everybody, as you see, like having these fancy cars and people taking international trips and, you know, having the time of their lives, money was flowing. Suddenly, you know, overnight, everything changed. And... um, and so I guess the result of that was that people just started to, you know, jump ship. People started to leave Trinidad in their droves. Um, and, and so that's, that was kind of the reality of what was happening during the 80s. And that, you know, a lot of my, like I, you know, friends from school, you know, many of my friends, have they just left Trinidad, you know. And like in many cases, it was quite difficult for the families to leave. They were sort of headed, you know, they might have been headed to England or to the US or to Canada. And I mean, I think North America was certainly a destination, you know, because there was sort of the idea at the time that you could go and you could kind of work your way up and stuff like that. And so people would go and like families would kind of separate, like the mom would go ahead first and the you know dad and the kids would stay behind or mom and dad would both go and kids would, and like, you know, you'd have these kids who were like 12, 13, who'd be like keeping house and getting all the children to school. And like, you know, this is kind of the level of sacrifice that people made to try and get out of Trinidad and get to somewhere better. Um, but, I mean, so that was sort of, that was the reality of what was happening in Trinidad, you know, at that time. But, like, what's in the book, it's, you know, as I say, they're just, like, hints of, of the of the the actual, you know, that it is the 80s, is the pop songs and stuff like that. But, you know, I'm, I'm not sort of, you know, I've taken quite a lot of artistic license in other places. Um, so there, there are various things that happen in the book that did not happen during the 80s. Um, but, I mean, the backdrop to the whole thing is that, you know, this is a, this is um you know, it's a country that, you know, has many wonderful things about it. Of course, the, you know, the weather, some people think the weather is great. You have beaches, you know, you have, you can pick fruit off the trees. I mean, there's lots of wonderful things about this place. You know, it's a very social place, a lot of parties. People don't get sort of isolated the way that they do in cities. But on the other hand, it was a place that, um, you know, that people sometimes want to escape from. And in this particular family, I think they have, you know, they have one very bright child and and they really want the best for this child and they're willing to, you know i guess the book asks like how far how much of a sacrifice um should a family make or should a parent make um you know to try and get the best for for the child who who um is capable of more than than what that particular country can offer it is um
2: it presents things in really interesting ways actually because you may think that there's kind of a a cut-and-dried moral answer to a lot of things, but I think what Golden Child does so well is it brings in those shades of ambiguity and, you know, there are some quite shocking things that happen, but you're never quite sure if they're... For the best or not for the best, mm-hmm. really, and I think that's something that you keep thinking about long after you've read the book. Mm. I'm finding it very hard actually to sort mm. of talk to you about this without doing terrible spoilers well, for anyone I know,
3: who I might. Know. I find it really hard too. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I find it hard too because, I th- like, for me, of course, like as the author, like I, of course, I, I know the whole book, and of course, like when I was writing it, I actually did know, you know, some of the key things that happen in the book. I, I sort of knew them from the outset, and so it's, it is quite hard to kind of talk about it without talking about. Sort of the big picture that I always could see myself because it just it sort of gives away too much. I mean, I, I do hope that it's not cut and dried. I mean, I um, you know, like it's, it's some advanced copies have sort of gone out, and uh, you know, there's reviews on Goodreads, you know, and I mean, people tell you you shouldn't do this to me, but I have been reading all my Goodreads reviews <laughs> partly because it's very like I'm not, you know, I am happy to say that it's generally getting good reviews. Is four star? I can't remember, you know, generally it's it's going well, but but you know, I'm very Sort of interested in the people who give it one or two stars. I'm like, okay, why did this book not work for you? What did what did you, you know, what did I sort of try and what did I set out to do that failed for you? And I think that, um, well, I mean, there there are many things, but I think maybe this is probably not exactly what you were asking, Anna. So I'm sort of you know, I'm still interested going off on a tangent here, but um, but yeah, I suppose people have different preconceptions about what a place like Trinidad might be like, or. Um, people have, I suppose, they might have their moral preconceptions about what is right and wrong. I suppose those as well. So yes, I mean, I suppose the book, I, you know, it would be if if people felt that those things were, were challenged in their minds, I would feel that's a success.
2: Um, mm. Yes, I certainly sort of went through several different flips about what I thought would be the right mm-hmm. course of action um, mm-hmm. throughout it. But we're going to leave Trinidad and go to somewhere much closer to your current home, um, and talk about your favorite independent bookshop, which is a question we ask everybody on this podcast. Yes. Um, so you're going to tell us about, uh, Kirkdale
3: Books. Yes. Yes. So, um, I will tell you about Kirkdale Books. And so, um, so this is in Sydenham, which is in South East London. Um, and it's, Oh, what can I say about Kirkdale? It's a lovely, it's just a lovely little bookshop. It's, um, I mean, it seems very small from the outside. Um, it's got like the, you know, the fruit and veg shop on one side and it's got, I think we've got an estate agent now on the other side and there's Kirkdale bookshop. It's like this little sort of narrow little, <laughs> little shop in the middle. And, but you go in and actually they managed to fit so much inside that bookshop. So, you know, all the sort of, the new hot um, books often in hardback are kind of right there at the front as soon as you go in and they're extremely tempting. Honestly, I walk in and I know I should not be buying these books and my hand kind of reaches out. And I, you know, Michelle Obama's book is there now and that sort of thing. And, um, and in the back there is a children's section and it's got a nice sort of colourful carpet and comfy seating and um, and then behind that there's uh, the owner's office, Geraldine's office. And I was in there the other day, actually, because I was talking to her about something and it's it's really like something out of Dickens. I hope Geraldine doesn't mind me saying all this, but it's this sort of towering piles of paper and <laughs> it's, it's, it's lovely, I have to say. And then so on the side, there's like this... Um, a little room where you can get your tea and coffee, and you have the place to sit down, and you can take your book, and you can just sit there on the chair and have your coffee, and nobody will disturb you. And I mean, it really is a huge luxury, I think, in you know, in in this day and age, to to um you know to be able to sort of walk into a shop and pick something off the shelf and and sit and look at it, and nobody will bother you, and nobody will hassle you and say how long you've been reading that book and get out of here. So I mean, that is you know that really is a wonderful thing about about bookshops in general, and certainly a wonderful thing about. Kirkdale. And I mean, and they do all sorts of things, of course, you know, they do readings for kids on a Saturday morning and they run, you know, uh, readings and they run a book club and, and there's sort of a gallery room on the side and it's got sort of a skylight with natural light and that's where you get your tea and coffee. And then there's even more downstairs. Downstairs they have all the sort of, you know, that really is just like I hope Geraldine doesn't mind me saying it's like the sort of cobwebby kind of. You go down these creaking steps, and they're all these sort of you know these really old sort of you know they fall apart on your fingers types of books. And some of them are very expensive because they're actually antique books, and other ones are just you know sort of secondhand. But there's it's a treasure trove in there, and um, it, yeah, so it is it is the kind of. I mean, I don't know if I just see it this way because I like books myself and I like bookshops, but to me it sort of seems like a little. Kind of little hub of the community, really. Like, um, yes, all sorts of little sort of community actions have, you know, that's kind of been their their, their center. Like we had a, or we still have actually a um, Sydenham Arts Festival, which runs in the summer. And like all the, you know, they were the box office for that. They would sell all the tickets and you'd go in and, you know, get all the information about these events. And we have, um, there's somebody who used to work at the bookshop, Jonathan Kaufman, who he has a theatre company. And again, you know, the, that um Kirkdale bookshop was sort of the place where you would go to get your tickets and find out all the schedules and um and, and now in fact that theatre company has sort of has blossomed and there's kind of a theatre space which is provided by Lewisham Council. It's all a bit complicated and I may be getting it wrong, but but you know that's you know, there was this, you know, this sort of arts festival and the theatre and all that has sort of grown out of um you know, just having that bookshop, which was this sort of solid place to go, and it was it was always there. You know, other shops sometimes came and went, but that bookshop was still there. So
2: talking about the books that you'd buy from there that mm. you'd like to tell our readers about as well. And I've got to say, it sounds like a fantastic place. I have friends down that way, so I should definitely oh, do go oh, next fantastic. time I visit. Oh, fantastic. Oh, it's very good. Yeah. Um, but uh, one of the books you wanted to talk to us about is Doris Lessing's The Grass Is Singing. Yes. And I know that this is a book that you said probably had... Um,
3: quite an impact on mm. your current novel as mm. well. Mm. Could you
2: tell me a bit about why that is?
3: Yes. Um, so I, I only read Doris Lessing when I came here to London, but previously, like when I'd been living in Trinidad, um, I mean, it, it wasn't that easy to get books actually in Trinidad. Um, and so we often like, you know, because my mother's Irish, she used to come to Ireland every three years and then we kind of fill up our suitcases and take them home again, you know. But um but it was it was interesting. Just the few books, and these are the well, you know, is Alan Payton and and Chinua Achebe, you know, those sorts of books. Like it was it was really interesting just reading those. And it was I was sort of trying to think about why it was. And I think it's to do with um, it's just their the physical reality of their landscape is similar to ours. So like I think it's in I think it's in Cry the Beloved Country that you know it talks about the red brown dirt um, and the. that that the soil is so dry. And um, and I remember reading that and thinking, well, that's exactly how ours is. Because, you know, of course, we have read many books about places like England and England is typically described as, you know, very green sort of fields and you have oak trees and and those things are uh, very damp (laughs) and all those things. And that's all wonderful. But, you know, so coming like from a tropical sort of setting, those things were quite foreign for us. And so it was really interesting reading the, you know, these few books that I read that had been set in Africa. Of course, Africa is a huge continent, and it's, you know, it's a huge variation, but just the, the one or two that I did read, I think they made an impression because the landscape was something about the landscape and the temperatures and the, and other sort of physical facts were similar to what we experienced. So that's a very long way of getting round to why I was interested in Doris Lessing at all. And um, I was just going to say, for the benefit of people listening um, who may
2: not know that *The Grass is Singing* is set in uh, southern Rhodesia in the 1940s, as the country was called then. It's now Zimbabwe. That right, part of the land, right? Um, but sorry, anyway, yes, no, yeah, no, no, that's okay. And I think it probably relates to what you were going to say. Yeah, as yeah. Well. And
3: I think that um, I mean, what? Well, the book is sort of about. I mean, people may be familiar with it already, but it starts with like a little press clipping and it's a, it's a murder. So there's a white couple and there it's Mary and Richard Turner, the white couple, and they have this farm. And Mary Turner has been murdered, it seems apparent, by her houseboy, who's a black houseboy. And um, and it's, it, you know, I think the, the it starts off as murder mystery. So it's this little sort of cutting in the news, this little article in the newspaper that announces the murder and... Um, and then the the first section is just about the reaction of the townspeople, and and the townspeople are very sort of, they they don't talk about it, and um. And there's this sort of knowingness; they seem to know something that went on, and they they all they say about it is that it's a bad business, it's a bad business, and so it's so like it's the ending sort of given away because you already know who was murdered and 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 that sort of thing. But then the rest of the book is sort of trying to go back to the beginning of you know Mary's sort of. Teenagerhood and how she got married and how she came to be on that farm and how she got to know this particular um, houseboy as he's called is called Moses, and then leading up to the murder. And what is interesting to me about this book is um, is, is the sense of omniscience. So uh, omniscience has kind of gone out of fashion, I think, in in writing terms. And you know, like nowadays, we're, you know, if you do writing courses, you're sort of told, oh, you know, stay in one person's head at a time. And if you kind of, you know, you can't jump from one person's head to the other person's head and like to sort of create a world where the author knows everything that is very out of fashion now it used there's a, there was a time when that was the done thing and now it's like totally not done thing <laughs> and if you go to writing classes and try to do that people are like oh my god this is terrible we, we do not want to and people just don't want omniscience anymore and so I think what, like what was interesting about this book to me was that she that she completely does this you know and she does it extremely successfully and so, you know we go into everybody's head And we go and sometimes we go, we zoom right in into like these teeny tiny details. Like one thing that stuck with me was, you know, the, the, you know, poor Mary when she was was on the veranda. And like, I mean, this is a very harsh landscape. Um, You know, they had this this little house, which they, I can't remember, they may have built it themselves and this little tin roof again, which is something which is very familiar, like coming from Trinidad. Like, I know what a house like that looks like. I know what it is like to live inside a house with that heat. And... um, and she was, you know, she's lying after having been killed, sadly. She's lying on the veranda and there was something about like the cracked, yellowed soles of her feet. And like, you know, so I think what made an impression on me was just this sort of zooming into these tiny details and then just like pulling straight, you know, pulling back out so that she has this huge bird's eye view of like the entire universe that she's writing about. And she manages to do all these things and um, and and the whole thing works. And she pulls it on. This is her first book. <laughs> Um, I'm kind of fascinated. mm. Why why do you think omniscience has gone out of fashion? (laughs) Well, I don't know. That's a really good question. I don't know. I mean, I think it's that, um I don't know, I, I'm, you know, I I would like to say I did physics as my degree. So <laughs> there are all these sort of literature things that are, you know, other people sort of talk about. So I'm like, oh, my God, I have no idea why this is. And I, you know, so I feel like I have a lot to catch up on. But uh, however, as a yeah. physicist, you should be really good about thinking about multiple universes all at once. Exactly. And I do.
0: You're used That's to right. stretching your
1: That's brain right. in that way.
2: Yeah. <laughs>
1: You have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host.
2: (laughs) Um, Talking about uh, the novel that you always recommend to people, Mm. it's a personal favorite of mine as well. You've picked uh, Raymond Carver's Mm. short stories, What We Talk About When We Talk About Love. Now, what is it
3: that makes you always recommend Carver? Yes. Well, Carver, I mean, again, Carver was somebody who I didn't know about before. So I did an MA at Goldsmiths a couple, you know, five years ago or something like that. And, you know, when I went to the MA, everyone's like, oh, you know, they're, they're these, you know, there's this kind of list of authors that everybody seems to know and everybody seems to talk about. And I'd never heard of this author. And I read this author. And to be honest with you, I mean, so Raymond Carver, so he's American. And, um, oh, God, I, sh- I should know, I should have all these facts at my fingertips. so I don't remember. But, you know, he's sort of working class Americans. He's a, he writes about... Um, working class, American, they you know, they all drink too much and they smoke and they have arguments and, you know, they're, they're very, I guess they're sort of known for being like normal people. And, uh, and he writes these very short stories and well, not necessarily very short, but he writes short stories and they're sort of known for being very, very pared back. And he famously had this editor, Gordon Lish, who sort of like you know, gutted these stories and like, you know, cut out half of them and that's a whole other controversy in itself. I've seen bits where they're so
2: precise they can say, yes, this one was 9% shorter. It's like, (laughs) who quantifies it to that level?
3: Gordon Lister, clearly. Oh my God, um, I know. But yes, but um, the reason I recommend them to people is um, for a number of reasons. I mean, one, because they're, they're, they're short. So I recommend them to people who don't read a lot, to be honest. And if I talk to people who say, oh, you know, I don't read and I don't really have time to read and oh God, I could never... I really find my way into a book. I say, "Oh, you know what? But just try these. Look, here's his short stories. You know, and they're very short, actually. And 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 you know, the other thing is, of course, Raymond Carver is a man, and you know, many of his characters, there's both male and female characters, but there's a lot of men in there. And I kind of think, you know, if, you know, if there are men who maybe don't like to read, or you know, don't like to read fiction, sometimes men. I, I hate to generalize, but you know, Um and I think, I think, um I feel like men, I feel like men maybe could benefit from reading. <laughs> Reading these
2: stories. (laughs) I think before it was even a popular phrase, he's always been quite good at portraying what
3: we now call toxic masculinity. Right, right, exactly. You see, I I mean, I do go online, don't get me wrong, like I am, you know, but I have like a little Nokia phone and I'm sort of trying to stay away from sort of um, technology and these kinds of things. So I know that all of, you know, many, many things are all sort of explained online and I could find all these, all the the good words, but... um, but yes, I sort of I do it the slow way. I kind of try and figure things out for myself. But yes, you're right. Toxic masculinity. Yes, see, yes. That probably is why I think you know maybe maybe some men could sort of um, benefit from reading these stories. But I think as well, like the other thing about the stories is that um, you know there's so much which is which is um, maybe because of Gordon Lish or maybe because of how Carver wrote them. I mean, they're they're very. Um, What's the word? It, it, they just talk about, there isn't that much of the sort of interior monologue. It's just, it's very. it takes a very external viewpoint. You know, somebody does this and somebody does that. Somebody opens the door, somebody has a cup of coffee. So you, you just get the actions. You just get the f- sort of physical, dramatic action most of the time. You get a little bit of internal thought. Um, but, I mean, the consequence of that is that the reader has to figure a lot out for themselves, And many times you might read one of Raymond Carver's stories and not really know what it's about. But despite that, you might still find sometime later that story is still in your mind and you're still sort of trying to puzzle something out, um, which is, of course, the mark of many people would say is the mark, you know, whether it is or not, I don't know. But many people would say that is the mark of a very good story. But I think, um, you know, so I think I'm still in that state for many Raymond Carver stories. I still sort of feel... You know, I still don't know what that story was about. Um, but I think there's like, you know, like in, in maths, you know, there's a thing about maths, you know, sometimes you can't figure out a problem and you might think, oh, my God, I'm so dumb. I can't figure out this problem. But actually, there's a thing which is like to be stuck on a problem is an honourable state. So, you know, while you're there, while your mind is grappling with the problem, that is actually an honourable state to be in. It's a state of dignity to be, you know... Toughing, you know, to be staying with this problem. So I sort of think that's a little bit about the Raymond Carver stories. I think, you know, even if they don't make sense um, straight away, you know, I think there's value in just sitting with it um, and wait and see what comes out. Yeah. I, I really like that, actually, the, the state of grace of mm. uh, grappling with
2: something. I think that's probably something we could all bear in mind. Mm. If you ever come to write a self-help book, that's mm. your title, I think. <laughs> um, so, uh, talking about things that are sitting with you, this is a book that's sat with a lot of people for a very long time. Um, your classic that you've chosen is, I think, probably what would be many people's classic yes, pick as well, It's yes. Pride and Prejudice.
3: Yes, yes.
2: Why? What's your take on Pride and oh, Prejudice? Because everyone Pre- has their own one.
3: Right, okay. I mean, I thought this one was interesting to mention just because... Um, Because, you know, again, I read this when I was in Trinidad, and I mean, as everybody knows, this is a story set in, you know, in England of times past. And, you know, there are these sort of very, what now seem like sort of archaic concepts of having, you know, 4,000 a year or 5,000 a year, and... And I just thought it was, I thought people might like to hear that, you know, that, that for me growing up in Trinidad, that I also um, was able to enjoy this book, even though I didn't sort of know what many of the things meant. Like I didn't, I couldn't visualize a place like Netherfield Hall or, um, and, and it did seem sort of quite weird that, you know, there were, that people seemed so preoccupied with, with how much money people had and things like that. But but the basics of the story, the sort of, you know, here's, you know, this mother who wants to marry off her girls and we're like oh yes I know exactly
2: (laughs) what that is like. She's a universal figure this is Bennett isn't she?
3: (laughs) And you know then you have the Lady Catherine de Bourgh who's sort of trying to tell Lizzie what to do and you're like no way Lizzie you stand up to her and like you know so we sort of even though we didn't sort of know what's kind of lady this and sir that we didn't sort of have any um, context for that I mean of course you know just from reading about it in other books but like we didn't have that in our society at all. Um, but we still had the concept of like, you know, the big person and the little person and the little person's kind of standing up to, them, you know, and saying, I'm not going to take any of that. And and then, of course, it's so romantic. And Mr. Darcy, I mean, so it was. Um, but of course. yeah But of course, exactly. Which I know is just so like that's commonplace for you guys. But I think that for me, it's quite remarkable that, you know, as a, as a kid in Trinidad, you know, I live in a tropical country. I'm talking about, you know, we have, you know, we have none of this kind of servants and big houses. We have none of that. And yet the story sort of was um, was enjoyable by me also. Um, so another one set in a, well, a tropical part of a
2: country. Um, it's actually the one you've chosen for your favourite cover, uh, mm. which is Arundhati Roy's The God of Small Things. And it is the classic, I was asking you about this earlier, and yes. it is the classic cover.
3: Yes. That, um, oh, I just love this. I have to say, I just love this cover. I think, um, I mean, so the cover, if you haven't seen it, it's sort of, so the book is set in India and it's about these twins and um, it's, it's a very, it's a beautiful story about sort of forbidden love, I suppose, with this, the twins, Esther and Rahel and um, and their mother, Amu, and then uh, the, the person who their mother loves, who's, who's an untouchable and is not supposed to love. And everything sort of goes horribly wrong, but it's, but there's so much love and beauty in the story. It's just absolutely gorgeous. And so the cover of the book is, um, I mean, it's sort of the colours are kind of a, you know, Sort of a swampy gray, maybe sort of a grayish green um but I mean it's their lotus lotus leaves on a pond, and then there's just this one very tiny, beautiful pink flower, and the flower is so bright it's it's very tiny, but it's so bright and beautiful that it sort of you know it sort of casts this glow over the rest of the of the picture, and it's as though this sort of this little. This little bright thing, which is sort of trying so hard to grow against, you know, perhaps the ugliness and the sort of despair of the rest of the story, say. So it's this, um, it's very beautiful, I think.
2: And Carol is such a lush and verdant place, and to sort Mm. of pair that back to make the point about the story, it's actually Mm. a really nice piece of graphic design. Yeah, I suppose so, yes. I mean, and it's, yeah, it's, yeah, I think it's just a beautiful cover. I was going to ask you in this book, actually, because I was thinking about the sort of twins motif. And obviously you've twins in your book as well. Yes. Um, Do you think twins in literature have a particular resonance or twins in general life at all?
3: That's a good question. I don't, I don't know. I mean, like, I guess I chose twins for this story because um, it's a bit tricky to talk about it without giving away the ending. But I suppose I wanted to, um, I wanted to make these, these two boys the same Aside from one being very bright and one being not so much, like I felt if I made them a boy and a girl, you know, because the family is sort of um, indo trinidadian I felt that people would sort of make assumptions about what the value of the girl is versus what the value of the boy was. And I felt if one was older or younger, then, you know, that sort of would cause people to sort of make assumptions as well. I just thought that if they were twins, it, um, it it sort of put them on level pegging. It meant that they were sort of on on equal footing, and and you know the parents have to try and be fair to to both. I, I mean, as parents would be anyway, but it, it sort of was an extra reason to sort of be fair to both. There's no
2: external societal pressure mm. or any kind of prejudices apart right. from the actual right. children themselves. Exactly.
3: Good. You put it so much better than I can. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you wrote the whole book. You're okay.
2: You've already done a lot of thinking about this. Um, and then there's a book that you think that people will be really surprised that you enjoy. Mm. Um,
3: which is South, isn't it? Yes. So this is, I mean, I don't normally read nonfiction. So this is South by Shackleton. So this is Ernest Shackleton, the polar explorer. And yes, I don't normally read nonfiction at all. I find it very sort of da 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 da, da. But, um, but, you know, sometimes a book, you know, it sort of finds you at the right time. And I think I was travelling, my husband is from New Zealand, and so we were travelling to New Zealand, and I picked this up, I think I picked it up in the airport. And... um You know, I opened this book in the airport, and I'm just going to read the first sentence, if I so I said. After the conquest of the South Pole by Amundsen, who, by a narrow margin of days only, was in advance of the British expedition under Scott, there remained but one great object of Antarctic journeyings, the crossing of the South Polar continent from sea to sea. So that's a bit of a long sentence, but it's, you know, it's like, you know, here's this man. He's right. He's like, you know, well, somebody else, you know, reached the pole. There's only one other thing left to do, and that's cross the continent. And I just, I mean, it's it was just such a fantastic adventure story. And I mean, many people already know sort of some of what happened, but so they, they didn't make it very far. Um, So they were on this boat, which was the Endurance, and they were, you know, they set off from, I think they set off from New Zealand. And it was December 5th, I think it was 1914, and they set off. But I mean... I think they were trying. They were trying to travel it in what have, what would have been the Antarctic summer, um, and they were hoping for good conditions, but there was, there was just ice. Every- you know the ice is everywhere, and so the boat. I mean, this boat is you know fantastically made, and it was sort of you know pushing through this ice, um, but the boat eventually got trapped in the ice, and they had to abandon it. And then they had. From then, they just they were just trying to get themselves to safety, and I mean, you know, the 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 amount of peril is just fan You know, they're, they're like. The, the pieces of ice are sort of like breaking up onto their feet and like it's freezing cold and there are these mm-hmm. blizzards and then they're like to top it all off they're like killer whales who are like jumping out of the water trying to get them and I mean it's, it's just an amazing adventure story and uh, I did, you know I mean I think Shackleton nowadays is sort of studied in these leadership courses because he you know so they had split up into a couple of different groups and um, and You know, in in the other group, I think somebody, another sort of set of people were supposed to be laying depots and for for the the journey. And some of those men, unfortunately, died on their way. But of Shackleton's team, you know, even though he lost the boat and he had to, you know, the amount of stuff that he had to do was amazing, but he brought every man back alive. So quite a story was quite a story and bringing everyone back alive at that particular time as well, because I think he set
2: sail just days after the First World War started as yes, well, didn't he?
3: Yes, exactly. And I think that he, I mean, I think he says this in the book that, um, they were, you know, they had, they had to do a lot of fundraising and a lot of preparation and, you know, get the board ready. And, all. you know, there was all this stuff that they had to do. And then just as they were about to set off, there was the declaration of war. and it, And, of course, all the men, you know, this is, you know, they all sort of said, look, you know, we'll just abandon everything right now and we'll go and fight. We're absolutely ready to do that. But George V, I think, said, to, he just sent them a telegram saying, proceed. And so off they went. But, they, were you know, I think the whole time they were a little bit unsure about whether, they, you know, obviously they had their instruction. The instruction said, go ahead, do it. This is for British adventure and you're doing, um, you know, they were doing sort of um, observations and experiments and things like that as well. But, but, you know, they were just dying to know what was happening with the war and they wanted to be there. They didn't. And I think that they did... Um, they did experience a bit, of, you know, some a bit of a possibly a mixed reception when they came back because, you know, maybe some people sort of said, Oh, you know, you were hiding out in the Antarctic when everybody else was here fighting for our country. But um yeah, there was that.
2: Mm-hmm. You'd hope it'd be a sort of a bit of a morale boost, but <laughs> <laughs> um, no, this is one I don't know at all, but it's a book you're really looking forward to reading as well, which is Lisa Halliday's A Cemetery. So Tell me about it so I can look forward to it too.
3: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't know that much about it, except that, like, it's the it's the big book over there. <laughs> I mean, it's out here as well. So it's, uh, you know, I really should have got my hands on it by now. But, um, but yeah, so this is Asymmetry by Lisa Halliday. And, um, I mean, it, the sorts of reviews that it's getting are just like, this is the most incredible book and it's this sort of genre-busting, earth-shattering kind of thing. So, I mean, I, that's, that's pretty much all I know about it, actually. But it's, you know, it keeps on kind of coming up in... Um, you know, on, on all the usual places on Twitter and social media. So it's like, wow, this amazing book. And um, yes, I mean, I know that there's, you know, possibly one of the talking points about it was that I think the the author, you know, maybe had a relationship with Philip Roth or something along those lines. And there's this sort of whole, like, you know, me too and maybe inappropriate. I, I don't, I mean, I don't even know. I'm just guessing. I'm just sort of thinking, you know, there's just a the little that I've sort of heard about it. But yes, that's definitely one book that I would love to get my hands on. And, you know, because from my point of view, you know, of course, I'm, you know, I've written my first book. I'm trying to write more. I'm trying to write stories. I'm trying to write another book. Um, so, you know, for me, it's it's really interesting to sort of see what other writers are doing. And especially if something, if people are talking about something as if it's like the, you know, she's done something amazingly new, then I want to know what that is. <laughs> I think we all do. Mm-hmm.
2: Um Claire, thank you so much for coming in today. Um, it's been really interesting talking to you and I just wish we had longer to kind of go into things more, oh, as thank I you always so think. Much. Oh. Um, Claire Adams' Golden Child uh, is out on January the 17th with Faber and Faber. Read Like a Writer was brought to you by Faber and Faber, Serpent's Tale and Gate, and was presented by me, Anna Fielding get a full list of what this week's author recommended, visit acast.com forward slash read like a writer. And we'd love to hear what you have to say too. So do tweet us at read like a pod. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince.